Today's scripture is from Mark 13, verses 24 through 37. But in those days, after that suffering, the sun be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in heaven will be shaken. Then they say, the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect for the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as the branches become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I tell you, this generation will have not passed away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But after that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Beware, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his slaves in charge, each with their work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on watch. Therefore, keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or in midnight, or at cock crow, or at dawn, or even he may find you asleep when he comes suddenly. And when I, what I say to you, I say to all, keep awake. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. You may be seated. Jesus was walking out of the temple when his disciples heard these prophetic words that have just been read for us this morning. Um, this prophetic discourse was actually prompted by one of those disciples who, um, by Mark's discretion here, remains unnamed. <laughs> I wonder who it might have been. Can't you guess? It was because this disciple was so awed with the architecture of the temple and the surrounding buildings that Jesus began to speak prophetically. The disciples said to Jesus, look teacher, what large stones and what large buildings, how grand this place is. And of course, Jesus then asked him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. And it's interesting to think about this. In order that it be remembered, those 
stones, at least some of them, that were a part of Herod's temple still lay where they were toppled. Why? Because the Jewish people did not want to forget what Rome had done to Jerusalem. And so they are this memorial that you can go to see even this day in this city of Jerusalem. The siege was horrific and it unfolded over the course of two to three years. But when finally the battalions of Roman soldiers camped outside of Jerusalem, everyone knew what was about to happen. And not only did they dislodge the stones one from the other, they burned as much of the city as they possibly could. Jesus went on to use this prediction, this prophetic prediction. He used it as a warning of the persecutions that were going to come. And surely Mark, who wrote this book, already knew how profound those persecutions were because as scholars say, Mark penned these words just prior to Jerusalem's collapse. Already, already the apostles Peter and Paul had lost their lives in Rome to the pressures that be. And here Mark is, this scribe of Peter's, who continues to tell the story that he has received, knowing what the implications will be. And Jesus does not mince words, for in the process of talking about the destruction and the persecution to come, he says, you will be beaten and you will die at the hands, some of you, of family members that will divulge where you are and what you are up to. Can you imagine that type of living? Jesus goes on to say that there will be this desolating sacrilege, and who knows what is being referred to, sort of like trying to figure out what Paul's thorn in the flesh was, you know. But here, Mark makes this parenthetical statement in his writing when Jesus is talking about the desolating sacrilege. He says, let the reader understand. So Mark knows what he's talking about. And you can bet every other Christian in that community knew what Mark was referring to. Was it the image of Caesar or the image of Herod that was actually there either at the doorway to the temple or in the temple itself? What was the desolating sacrilege? Or was it something that 
those who were in charge of the temple had somehow embraced that showed that they too were a part of that which was a disservice to God. Jesus warns that there will be many that will come to try to lead you astray. This continues even up to our day. Those self-appointed, egocentric, false messiahs, those who consider themselves to be the anointed ones who will lead culture in the way that they think that it should go. And so here we arrive at the beginning of the scripture that was read this morning. But in those days and after that, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from the heaven. And you've seen pictures of this for there are many people that are wont to take this literally. And who am I to say that it is not to be taken literally? Because only God knows the way that this will all come down. But I think that it is a disservice to these words for us not to see the metaphorical power of the prophetic language here. For those powers that be in the heaven and in the culture will find their ways ultimately to darkness, lest we think to put our allegiance in their camp. You hear what is being said, don't you? The son of man, the human one, will be coming in the clouds to gather his own as he continually comes to us in the mystery of who he is to gather us as his people. For the most part, I don't pay attention to fig trees unless, of course, the fruit is ready to be picked. And then who can resist, even if you don't like figs, to reach up and to take a ripe fig off of a fig tree? I have a friend who has a fig tree in his yard and he does not just simply bring me figs, he brings me fig preserves. What a precious thing to put on a piece of toast. This friend of mine, he and his wife, are deeply religious souls. I wonder if this verse did not prompt him to plant that fig tree in his yard. I've never asked him that question. 
I am sure of this, that they watch that fig tree throughout the year, regardless of whether those figs are present or not. They are watching the leaves on the fig tree begin to bud and the fruit in its infancy extend from the branches. There is nothing mysterious about this tree to them. For every day in the life of that tree is a reminder that something else yet is to come. I wonder if that plant is this prophetic reminder to them that Jesus will return soon. You have heard this before, haven't you? That Jesus is coming soon. All generations have their prophets that shout out this message, it seems, in Judeo-Christian tradition, prompted by some geological occurrence or meteorological occurrence or some kind of celestial event, some kind of, of covering of the sun by the moon or whatever that may be, this eclipse. Those that see into the politics of whatever day and age they have been living within. Whether it's the 15th century, the 16th century, the 17th, the 18th, the 19th, the 20th, or the 21st century, there are prophets in our midst who will say, the signs are that Jesus is coming soon. Do you remember how the chronological became sacred? This prophetic warning as we move toward the year 2000. Do any of you remember that? Y2K. And there were those that stood no doubt on mountains and expected that that would be the moment at which God would return and reclaim his own. Jesus tells his disciples that sh they should see all of this stuff coming down the pike. He does not lessen, but he heightens their awareness by talking to them about persecution and death and the desolating sacrilege and the fact that there will be false prophets that will lead them away. Jesus heightens their awareness. And it's all so very current for Jesus. For in his message to the disciples, he says to them, truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until these things have taken place. I mean, that's pretty current. If in Jesus's lifetime here on earth, he is speaking to those that will hear him 
And he's impressing on them that in their lifetime, these things will unfold. Now, scholars have tried to unpack this for these 2,000 years. Does this mean that Jesus was wrong in his prediction? Does it mean that he was talking about generation in a way that we don't understand? When we think about the chronological change from one generation of people to another, maybe this is not the way in which he is referring to generation. Maybe he is referring to this sinful generation. All of us being involved in those that will allow anything to go on in our lives or in our culture that lead us down disastrous paths that have nothing to do with godliness, with holiness, with the way in which we should be keeping the Spirit of God alive within our hearts. It's all very current for Jesus. And in fact, the time is always now, 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 now. It is always now. Jesus when he began his ministry. You remember he was preaching after having had that experience in the wilderness and coming out into his own. He said the kingdom is near or better yet interpreted, the kingdom is among you. The kingdom of heaven is among you. It is present with you. And he he is the one who makes that known. Jesus states about that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Is that because Jesus truly did not know? I think that is for wiser persons than me to figure out. What I can say is that if Jesus lived the way that he lived and did not know when this was going to happen, it truly is a motivation to me to live like Jesus lived, not knowing when this is going to happen. Beyond the pandemic, there are two plagues, at least two plagues, that beset our culture in this day. One of those plagues is the plague of naivete. <laughs> Those who do not have a clue and have no desire to have a clue what's coming down the pike. Those who live as if history is a joke. Those who live as if the future doesn't matter. Those who live in naivete, distracting themselves from anything that may be important about the course of events that have occurred 
in this year, 2020, <laughs> the plague of naivete. <laughs> and yet there is another plague that is a part of our culture. <laughs> and that is the plague of conspiracy. Have you heard that one around? Whew. Where wherever you look, something's happened that you ought to be aware of because somebody's out to get you. That however you want to figure it out, you're not going to be able to figure it out completely because there's somebody behind working the scene. It happens on the national and international level. It may be happening here in our community because there's always somebody, somebody that's working their angle. You've heard this language, haven't you? The plague of naivete and the plague of conspiracy. Two things that may harm us more than COVID ever thought that it could do in harm toward humanity. Isn't it interesting how Jesus doesn't go down either of these directions? His call is for us to watch and to be ready. <coughs> Don't just wish. Immerse yourself in hope. I think the reason we are here with this scripture today this lectionary scripture is because those who see the, the pattern of life and particularly the nature of church is that we romanticize the celebration of Christmas. And so by giving us this passage of scripture to focus on today in that three-year cycle of scriptures, They know in our heart, we're thinking about putting lights on the Christmas tree and stringing lights around our house because that's a pretty thing to do. And in fact, it's nostalgic. And it's something that warms my heart to even see a neighbor who's way ahead of us. But I'm gonna catch up, maybe not, maybe not catch up. But there are going to be a few lights at our house too. And the decorations and the shopping and the gift giving and all the food that's pre prepared that's a part of this season. And the gatherings are, in this case, the non-gatherings that we will try to figure out over the next four to five weeks. All of this has this way of taking its toll on us, taking us away from spiritual awareness rather than toward it, lulling us to sleep. Ask yourself this question, what truly helps to realign us with the hope for the world in Christ? What is it that realigns us? for the hope of the world in Christ. Is it these things that we do to celebrate 
this season. Now, I, I have to admit, I probably sound a little like Scrooge here, and I'm not dissing lights and decorations and gifts and food and gatherings, except if this becomes the all in all of what we are doing. Don't you remember that after Scrooge was confronted by his ghostly visitors that night of that ongoing dream, that Ebenezer came to a completely different way of seeing the world. And this is the nature of that story and why it draws us in. Charles Dickens is brilliant as he writes how hope took up residence in Ebenezer's heart and it transformed him completely. Let me ask you if you remember the story of the disciples falling asleep in Gethsemane. If you don't remember that fully, all you've got to do is to leave the 13th chapter that we have just finished reading this morning and move into the 14th chapter where that is recorded. Where Jesus, after sharing that last supper with his disciples, took them to Gethsemane and while Jesus was sweating drops of blood knowing what was coming down the pike. What were his disciples doing? But falling asleep. And over and over again, Jesus comes and seeks to keep them awake, asking them why they are sleeping. It's a mystery to him. Can't you stay awake? Don't you know what's happening? You see, this is what it's all about. Even in the midst of the conspiracy theories they may have had, even in the midst of the naivete that was a part of their life, they were not awake. Not to God they weren't. And so I ask you, what are the things externally that rob you of this type of wakefulness and hopefulness? And I ask you, what are the internal things that rob you of this wakefulness, this hopefulness. Hope is born on the wings of those who are awake. And in speaking those words, I remember Emily Dickinson's little poem, Hope is a thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. Where is it today that hope might perch within your soul? Have you noticed that we have a dove purchasing, per, perchi, perching in the greenery upon our altar this morning? What a reminder to us to allow God to plant his wakeful hope within us. 
this type of hope has the capacity to redefine everything about who we are and about what Christ means as he comes into the world. I ask you, I beg you, keep awake. Keep awake.